given you the good news that we have a workable solution to climate change. Not easy, it would take extraordinary focus, akin to what we have done in wartime in the past. And I've told you the not just problem, the existential problem. And the question then becomes, why on earth aren't we doing absolutely everything that we could be doing to implement this set of solutions before this problem completely overtakes us? That's Bill McKibben, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Bill McKibben on workable solutions to the climate crisis. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uses stark and dire language in its latest report. It says, the cumulative scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health. Any further delay in concerted anticipatory global action on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. It warns of irreversible trends that will render parts of Earth uninhabitable. There was brief media coverage of the IPCC report, and then it disappeared. There are workable solutions to slow down and stabilize the warning, thus avoiding some catastrophic impacts. But, as the co-chair of the UN report says, it's now or never. Our guest today is Bill McKibben, co-founder of 350.org. He's a leading environmental activist and is the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. He's the recipient of the Gandhi Peace Prize and the Right Livelihood Award. He's the founder of Third Act, which organizes people over the age of 60 for action on climate justice. He spoke at the 30th anniversary celebration of the Fresno Center for Nonviolence in Fresno, California. And now, Bill McKibben on workable solutions to the climate crisis. Since it's an anniversary, it seemed to me unfair to just jump right into the bad news. Don't worry, I will get there eventually. Um, but I thought I might try starting once with, um, with a little bit of the good news about where we are right now and the things that give us at least some chance of dealing with this gravest of all crises we've ever wandered into, the climate dilemma. And the good news is this. Over the last four or five decades, but especially over the last 10 years, scientists and the engineers have really done their part of this job and dropped the cost of good, clean, renewable energy so sharply and so fast about 90% in the last 10 years, that this is now the cheapest way to generate power on planet Earth. That is, that's extraordinarily important because we've known for many years, I, I did write the first book about all this back in 1989, which was a long time ago, 
We've known for many years that we had to get off coal and gas and oil, but we have not known exactly what was going to be able to take their place at a price that we could manage, that the world could afford. And now we do know. Here's a way of saying it, and I wrote a long piece for The New Yorker this winter making this point. The price has fallen so far and so fast that it is well within the realm of imagination now that human beings could quite quickly end our 200,000-year habit of setting things on fire. It has served us very well, you know, from the first campfire on when we learned to cook food and that allowed our brains to get much larger when we learned to sit around the campfire at night and bond with each other, which uh, uh, anthropologists think is one of the main ways that we became a social species. In the last few hundred years, our ability to burn coal and gas and oil created everything around us. Modernity is a function, and our prosperity in that modernity is a function of the fact that we each now have, in the Western world, thousands of servants, as it were, to do the work that once was done by muscles or by animals. But that good blessing is now causing unbelievable damage on many fronts that we'll get to in a moment. And it's no longer necessary. We can now take full advantage of the fact that the good Lord was kind enough to hang a large ball of burning gas in the sky about 93 million miles away, and we now have the wit to take full advantage of it. We can capture its rays on photovoltaic panels. We can take advantage of the fact that it differentially heats the earth, thus driving the winds that can power the turbines that capture that breeze. And we have the sort of ancillary technologies to let us take full advantage of all that electricity. In your home, the kind of trinity, either if you still need a car, an EV or an e-bike or an electric bus, you know, at least in parts of the world that where it occasionally gets cold, the air source heat pump to heat your house and to cool it by taking advantage of the energy and the ambient air outside. In your kitchen, instead of the open flame, the magnetic induction cooktop, all of these things more elegant than the things that they replace, all of them entirely doable. We have, in other words, the real possibility, if we want to seize it, of quick, dramatic action. And man, oh man, do we need that action. Here's where the depressing stuff comes in for a minute, so bear with me. The reliance on fossil fuel is now causing three simultaneous crises that are, each of them, horrendous. The first, and the one we don't talk about often enough, is just the sheer effect of burning all that stuff on the health of human beings. There was a big study last year that finally gave us good numbers for the first time, and the numbers were very, very large. Nine million people a year die from breathing the combustion byproducts of fossil fuel, the, mostly the particulates that are produced. You can't see them, but they're there when people are burning things. Nine million people turns out to be a lot. That's about one death in five on this planet. 
It's more than died from COVID, HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, war, and terrorism combined last year. It trails only heart disease and cancer as a killer of human beings. But we don't know how to solve cancer in all its forms yet. We do know how to solve this. The vaccine for this killer disease is called electric bicycles and batteries and so on and so forth. Worth bearing in mind, of course, that those nine million deaths are heavily concentrated on the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet, here and everywhere else. And I know that you guys deal with significant pollution issues here that we must address. You should feel when you're breathing that air in deep solidarity with people around the rest of the world, especially the developing world, who breathe it every single day and at even higher, more elevated levels. Second crisis that we really are understanding fully for the first time this winter is the deep link between fossil fuel and autocracy, between fossil fuel and the most savage kind of war. I've been doing a lot of work the last couple of months with one of my favorite colleagues, a woman named Svetlana Romanko uh, in Ukraine. And she's been a long-time climate campaigner. She's been working for the Catholic climate movement, the Laudato Si movement that's spreading the word of Pope Francis's remarkable encyclical on global warming. But now she's being bombed every day. And so she's her work has taken on a different tone and a new urgency. And when I was on the I was doing a some kind of TV show with her last week and she just said, people just have to understand that fossil fuel is a weapon of mass destruction. Vladimir Putin gets 60% of his export earnings from selling oil and gas. That's basically the entire Russian economy. If you don't believe me, go home tonight and look through your house and try to find something of Russian manufacture that you could boycott. Unless you have an old bottle of Stoliknaya sitting in the back of the liquor cabinet, I predict you will find nothing. Okay? It's just a gas station. That's what it is. And... It's used not only that for its, the money to fund its army, it's used it as its weapon to keep Western Europe cowering for the last two decades. They just keep saying, we'll turn off the tap if you say anything about the fact that we're killing every opposition leader in our country or whatever it is. And that's true not only in the case of Russia, it's true every, almost everywhere from fossil fuel. Because it's concentrated in a few places around the world, the people who live on top of those places end up with way more power than they deserve. So Vladimir Putin's a good example. So is the king of Saudi Arabia. And it's really sad to watch Joe Biden having to go off and bend the knee to the king of Saudi Arabia. This is not an interesting man. This is a guy who cuts people's heads off with a sword if he doesn't approve of them. Okay, But as long as he's got oil under his sand and as long as we depend on it the way we do, we will be bending the knee. Close to home, you know, our biggest oil and gas barons in this country, the people who've made the most money off oil and gas, are the Koch brothers, who own most of the big pipeline and refining systems in this country. And they've taken the money they've earned from doing that, and they've purchased one of our political parties, and they've degraded and deformed our democracy in the process. 
It's not that there won't be rich people from solar power and wind power, but they won't be rich on that same scale. And if you think about it for a moment, you understand why. Um, first of all, there's no way for someone like Vladimir Putin to blockade the sun. At least let's hope there isn't. Um, um, he can't interdict the wind, you know, and keep it from blowing. And that's the point. You can make some money, and people are, and that's good, I guess, setting up solar panels and wind turbines. But once they're set up, well, the sun delivers the energy for free every morning when it rises above the horizon. That's why Exxon hates it so much, let me just say in passing. For them, this is the stupidest business model anybody ever thought of, because they like the system where you have to write them a check every day till the end of time. And when you think about it in those terms, by the way, you understand another of the great advantages of moving very fast to renewable energy. It's that it dematerializes in some large way the world around us. It's because, yes, you have to mine lithium or cobalt or whatever once to build the stuff that you're going to build, and we have to figure out how to do that as cleanly and humanely as we can. But once we've mined it and built the solar panel or the battery or something, we don't have to mine it again for a long time. You, build, you put up the solar panel and it sits there for 25 years. But if you have a coal-fired power plant, what do you do? Every day you take the coal and you set it on fire. And then you have to go out the next day and get another big batch of coal to burn again. We think the total mining burden on the planet would drop about 80% if we moved to renewable energy. Another way to think about that, and a statistic that really sticks in my mind, 40% of all the ship traffic on the high seas in this world is just carrying coal and gas and oil back and forth to be burned. That's it, not carrying finished products or even raw materials. So it's quite possible to imagine a world where you could just put half the ships in dry dock and that would be that, and everybody would be happier for it, including the whales that we were supposed to be saving all along. The third reason is the most pressing, of course, and the one I've spent my life working on, and that's the climate crisis that we face, and it's a crisis that keeps growing and growing and getting sadder and harder. I mean, just this week, I was in L.A. There's this summit of the Americas going on, but there's this kind of people's summit, counter-summit happening where I was, and talking with people all up and down Latin America, South America, who are dealing with, you know, the fact that the glaciers on which their water supply depends are now disappearing and disappearing very, very fast. We've got vast cities in the Americas that have no idea what they're going to do for a water supply 10 and 15 and 20 years out. The next day, yesterday, I guess, I was in Napa, um, one of the richest and most beautiful places on the planet. But you know, now you sit there in the valley, surrounded by people eating good food and drinking good wine, and you look uh, 500 yards up on the hillside, and it's black scorched earth as far as you can see, all burned down. I met people who'd lost their house to different houses twice in four years, you know, to fire. And that's in a place 
that's as rich as it's possible to be on our planet. I got on the train this morning and rode here and passed all those orchards and fields and things, acutely conscious of the fact that California is once again deep, deep in drought, and it's pretty hard to figure out how very much longer one's going to be able to keep all that agriculture. I mean, if it doesn't, if, if there's not a snowpack in the Sierra Nevada, then it's really hard to figure out how you keep providing all of that. And it's not like California's the only place where that's going on. China is having its worst wheat crop ever this year after extraordinary drought. Uh, the same thing going on um, in Chile. Uh, the same thing going on across much of the Midwest where they had a huge drought all winter and then incredible rains all spring. It's been very hard to get crops in the ground. It's a terrible year for all that climate havoc to be happening because it coincides with the war in Ukraine and the fact that the vast Ukrainian grain harvest is now bottled up in ports as Vladimir Putin tries to starve the world into some kind of submission. It's going to be a very, very hard year and the beginning of a stretch of hard years into the future, as far as we can see. Climate change is by far the biggest thing that humans have ever done, and it is already pinching at the most painful way. The worst of these stories was this morning in the Times from Somalia, where they think half the population now is facing some kind of starvation after four years essentially without rain. And the pictures are precisely like the pictures that some of us are old enough to remember from places like Biafra 40 and 50 years ago. We had thought that we had more or less licked extreme hunger as a problem on this planet. The numbers had gotten better decade after decade until about five years ago when they began to go right back up again because you can't grow food easily in deserts and in places that have flooded. And that's increasingly what we do. All the havoc I've described so far comes when you raise the temperature one degree Celsius. That's how much we've raised it so far. What, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. It doesn't sound like very much. So think about it in other units. The amount of extra heat that we trap each day on this planet is the heat equivalent each day of 400,000 Hiroshima-sized explosions. When you think about it in those terms, you get an easier understanding of how we've melted most of the sea ice in the summer Arctic and liberated enough energy to start raising the sea level in, in appreciable and accelerating terms and on and on and on. Um, the really tough news is one degree Celsius is still fairly near the start of this experiment that we're conducting. Right now, we're on trajectory to raise the temperature of the Earth about 3 degrees Celsius, 5, 6 degrees Fahrenheit. If we do that, I think the emerging consensus is we're not going to have civilizations like the ones we're used to having. There's just too much violent flux and chaos that comes with it. The UN estimates that that could produce a billion climate refugees by the middle of the century. So the world right now is struggling hard to deal with four million refugees streaming out of Ukraine. Multiply that by 250, okay? 
Each one of those pictures, you've seen those pictures of the vast crowds of people crossing the border into Poland or something. Now imagine that each person there is 250 people. Then try to imagine how the world deals with that. So the work that we're about and the most important work that anyone's ever undertaken on this planet is the effort not to stop global warming. Sadly, it is too late for that. Our goal, at best, is to hold things as low as we can. Two degrees Celsius, that would be a good outcome at this point. One and a half, a great outcome. And it would take everything that we had, and it would take doing it really fast. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is our authority on all these things, has told us that if we want to have any real chance of meeting the targets that we set in Paris seven years ago, that we need to cut emissions in half by seven years from now, 2030. That is an enormous job. And it is always worth remembering that speed that's required. Climate change is the only example we have of a kind of huge problem that comes with a very firm time limit. It's not like the other political problems we're used to. We've been arguing about national health insurance in this country as long as I have been alive, okay? And it is, I think, a sin that we don't have it, that we don't have what every other industrialized country in the world has. And people die each year and go bankrupt each year as a result. But it's not going to make it harder to do the right thing eventually that we didn't do the right thing all along. Someday we'll just get it together and do it. That's not the case with climate change. If we melt the Arctic, no one's got a plan for how you freeze it back up again. So the job is to do it now, fast, fast. All right, so I've given you the good news that we have a workable solution, not easy. It would take extraordinary focus, akin to what we have done in wartime in the past. And I've told you the not just problem, the existential problem, really alongside perhaps nuclear war, the only existential problem that we've ever faced as a species. So we have these two things. And the question then becomes the logical question. Why on earth aren't we doing absolutely everything that we could be doing to implement this set of solutions before this problem completely overtakes us? Rationally, that's what we would be at work on night and day around the planet. That's what we would be using our spare money on all over the earth. That we're not is a reminder that we don't live on a particularly rational planet. That, that there are other forces at work beyond reason here that we have to cope with. In fact, at this point, the big problem that we have is this combination of inertia, which is always a force in human affairs. If you don't believe me, ask yourself how long ago it was that you bothered to like try and clean out the dust under your refrigerator coil, even though that can cut the power used by a quarter or something. It's been a while for me, I'll tell you. Um, so inertia is always a problem. But in this case, by far the bigger problem is the toxic vested interest that it connects with. The fossil fuel industry has managed now to keep us from making change for 30 years, thanks to great investigative reporting. 
We know now that they knew everything there was to know about climate change back in the 1980s. I thought I was pretty ahead of the game when I was writing The End of Nature, that I was finding out things that other people didn't yet know. But it turns out that actually everybody at places like Exxon knew exactly what I knew then. They were, they were the biggest company on Earth. They had great scientists, and their product was carbon. So of course they were going to study it, and they did. By the early 1980s, their scientists had told their executives what the temperature would be in 2020 and what the CO2 concentration would be. And they were spot on, uncannily accurate. Not only that, they were believed. Exxon began merrily building all its drilling rigs higher to compensate for the rise in sea level that they knew was in the offing. What they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us. Uh, instead, they, across this industry, built this architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation uh, and kept us locked for 30 years in a completely sterile debate about whether or not global warming was real, a debate that both sides knew the answer to at the beginning. It's just one of them was willing to lie. And it's the most consequential lie in human history because it cost us the most valuable commodity time. We wasted all those decades. We didn't need to, but we did. And that's why we're now so far behind the eight ball, why we have to move so fast. And it's expensive and hard and difficult to move fast compared to moving gradually. Um, sorry, I got carried away with my anger at the fossil fuel industry. The possibility for outright denial is pretty much gone now. Even Exxon can't get it together to pretend that global warming isn't real. I mean, past a certain point, once you've watched California catch on fire, you know, 11 months a year, uh, for year after year after year, who are you going to believe? You know, Fox News or your own lying eyes, you know? And, and so even the oil companies are willing to admit now what's happening. They're just not willing to let us do anything about it. And the current proof is what's happening in Congress. Congress finally has before it a serious piece of climate legislation, uh, which if it passed would be the first piece of climate legislation it had passed, this Build Back Better bill. It's by no means great. Joe Manchin in the fall stripped out the most important part of it, the clean energy pricing plan uh, that would have forced utilities to quickly ramp up their deployment of renewable energy. We took out the stick, the next draft left in the carrot, $500 billion for renewable energy tax credits, which at least would provide some money to get this work off the ground and going. But Manchin hasn't let that through either. Manchin, I will say Manchin, but Manchin and the 50 Republican senators who never had any uh, uh, willingness to do anything at all about it. He's blocked that. The word I was hearing this week from people in Washington is maybe he'll let it through with about half that much money, especially if some of it will go for uh, uh, doing a lot of favors for the fossil fuel industry, too, and a lot of money we can waste on you know, carbon capture projects and things, but he might let something through. Why has he been so dilatory? Why has he done all this? Why has he blocked progress on the single most important issue, and in the process denied his constituents in West Virginia of hundreds billions of dollars in money for a transition off uh, coal mine. He's done it because he took more money from the fossil fuel industry than anybody else in Washington. 
That's a hard contest to win, but he won it. And their return on investment for that has been staggering. A couple of million dollars in campaign donations blocks hundreds of billions of dollars in desperately needed funds. Um, we do not give up on working on Washington, and I'm very glad to see the people from CCL and things hard at work still. But it is worth saying, to be quite honest, that our political system, especially at the federal level, is broken at the moment. And we're not going to get through the kind of rational legislation that we long since should have passed. And it is not going to get easier. It does not look after November. In fact, it's likely that it'll be completely impossible to do anything in Washington for many years to come. That does not mean that we give up this fight. You're listening to Bill McKibben on workable solutions to the climate crisis. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program. Just call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. That does not mean that we give up this fight. Among other things, we're lucky enough, some of us, to live in places like Vermont in my case, or California in yours, where you have some freedom of action to press. And California's done some fairly remarkable things, and it can do many more remarkable things going forward. Some of them are legislative, and we can talk about those. The other thing, though, is not to get fixated on the political process as the only way of dealing with this. There are two levers large enough to pull that matter, and one of them indeed is marked politics, and we have pulled it to the ground, and it's not producing much in the way of action, at least at the federal level. The other lever is marked money or finance, and that one still has some play in it, and we need to work it hard. We have to some degree. I've spent much of the last few years concentrated on this work around divestment, and it's gone quite well, thanks to the work of many people in this room. We're at about $40 trillion now in endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole from fossil fuel, and it's had a huge effect. Shell said in its annual report a couple of years ago that divestment had become a material risk to its business which is good because its business is a material risk to every living thing on the planet, you know, so good. Wonderful work in California where the UC system divested $100 billion, its endowment and its pension fund, from fossil fuel. Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge have divested huge religious denominations, including, thank you, the Unitarians have divested from fossil fuel. Uh, Pope, Francis is, Pope Francis and Queen Elizabeth have both divested holdings. It's been great. But it needs to go further, and there are many opportunities, and Californians have a prime one right now. The state senate passed a bill that would divest the CalSTRS and CalPERS, these vast pension funds from fossil fuel, and now it's before the senate, uh, and you all should figure out how to make sure that it gets through the senate. It's good to see some of the good people from Sacramento joined us down here today, you guys got to figure out how to push this through. You know, it should be 
the no-brainer of all no-brainers. The teacher's pension fund, there is nobody, nobody who went into teaching hoping that their life savings would be used to ruin the life chances of the kids that they were teaching. Do what you can on that. And then let's figure out how to take on not just the fossil fuel companies, but probably at this point, even more importantly, the financial institutions that give them the money they need to keep operating. Think about the four biggest banks in this country, Wells Fargo, B of A, Citi, and Chase. Between them, they've lent more than a trillion dollars with a T to the fossil fuel industry since the Paris Climate Accords were signed. So they didn't need Donald Trump to sabotage this thing for them. They were happy to do it themselves, um, just in order to make a little more money. Uh, money that, you know, they don't even, I mean, it's not like, I understand why Exxon fights back. It's existential for them, too. They only know how to do one thing, dig stuff up and set it on fire. If we don't let them do that, they're out of business. So I get why they fight, but if you're Chase, fossil fuel makes you some money, but it's 5 or 6% of your deal book. Is that worth destroying the planet over? Apparently, but the, the ability to fight back is very much there. Um, in fact, it's there more than ever now because we understand more deeply than we ever have before exactly how deep that damage runs. Uh, there was a study two or three weeks ago that I wrote a long piece about in the New Yorker that finally was managed to put a number on how much carbon your cash liberates. So you put your money in the bank, and then the bank uses that money to leverage lending for building pipelines or power frack wells or whatever it is they're lending out for. We now can add up, we now have a number of, to calculate what that produces in the terms of carbon. And the numbers are astonishing. The economist who did the calculations, when I talked to him, said, you know, I thought at first that I'd moved the decimal point one place wrong. These numbers seem too big, but we did it over and over and over again, and it's true. If you have $125,000 in the American banking system, mainstream American banking system, it produces more carbon than the average American life in a year. All the cooking, driving, heating, cooling, flying that the average American does produces less carbon than that $125,000 sitting in the bank. They did the calculations for the big tech companies, all of which have committed to going to net zero, you know, and leading the way on here and stuff. The numbers were incredible. Overnight, Google's carbon emissions went up 111%. Netflix produces more carbon from the cash that it has sitting in the bank than from everybody around the world streaming bad movies day and night around the clock. Uh, Amazon produces more cash from the carbon it has sitting in the bank than all its delivery vans and warehouses and things that it owns all over planet Earth. It's good, by the way, that we know that, and I'll describe the organizing we're doing as individuals to try and take on these banks, and it's important. It's going to be effective and helpful. But it would also be nice to have Tim Cook from Apple or Jeff Bezos from Amazon or something sitting down with Jamie Dimon from Chase Bank and saying, look, bro, uh, you know, you're screwing us up. We're supposed to be cutting our emissions to zero, and we can't do it because you keep wanting to play footsie with the fracking industry. You better choose. You want Amazon's business or you want 
you know, Chevron's business. Your choice. That's a tough call for Jamie Dimon, but that would be good at least to put him on the spot. So that's one of the places we're working, and some of the early signs were good. Some of these big companies, I interviewed the vice president at Salesforce, and they were like, yeah, we're going to sit down with our banks. We'll let you know what happens, and we need that to spread. But we also need all of us to do what we can. Um, that pressure can work. So here I've outlined three things for you. I've outlined the, the big solution and the crisis that it solves and some of the ways that we get there, pushing hard enough that we begin to, to get where we need to go. Now the interesting question for this, sort of to end with, is who has to do the pushing and what should it look like? And so far, the answer to that question has mostly been young people should have to do the pushing. Um, thank you guys very much. Um, um, when, uh, when, when I founded 350.org, I did it with seven college students. And that was the first effort at a sort of global climate campaign, and it's been good. It sort of kind of wrote the script for how to do this, and so many people have flooded in, most of them young. First, there were all the kids who cut their teeth getting working on college fossil fuel divestment over the last decade. When they got out of school, they formed this thing called the Sunrise Movement. And that what's brought us the Green New Deal, and the Build Back Better bill that's in Congress is just the kind of miniaturized version of the Green New Deal. Okay? Without them doing that work, it would not be there. They were the most effective political force in Washington. And they finally got a bill that's within a vote of passing, which is, as the people from CCL will tell you, not easy to do, a remarkable accomplishment. So they should be very much thanked. And of course, they're, I mean, and so since I know all these guys, because we've all worked on divestment, I now tease them and say, you guys are getting a little long in the tooth. It's really the you know, junior high school students that are the you know, key now. Everybody knows about Greta Thunberg, and everybody should. She's great. She's one of my favorite people on planet Earth. I love working with her. But she'd be the first to say the really good news is there are 10,000 Greta Thunbergs scattered across the planet, and they have 10 million followers. That's on September in 2019, sadly, right before the pandemic struck, there were 10 million kids who on climate strike in the same day across, and I was in lower Manhattan with Greta and the battery, and there were a quarter million kids uh, who'd taken off the day out of school and were rallying there and the same all over the world. And it was fantastic to see. However, however, it doesn't seem quite right that one takes the gravest problem the world's ever faced and assigns it to 17-year-olds to solve. Um, it seems, I mean, it's like between, you know, after geometry homework and before field hockey practice, would it also, could you also save the world? That would be, we'd like it if you would do that. Um, um, that's ignoble, and it's also impractical, because by themselves, young people lack sufficient power to pull those two levers, the one marked politics and the one marked money. They can point us in the right direction and provide the leadership and the idealism and the spirit, and that's what they're doing. But it's going to take the rest of us putting our weight behind that effort to pull those levers, especially, I think, those of us of a certain age. And I, 
I note that there are one or two other people like me in this room who have attained their status as experienced Americans, let's say. And I was very grateful to the raging grannies for their work in this regard. Here's why it's really important that we've got this third act thing going now to get people over the age of 60 engaged. One, people over the age of 60 vote like crazy. We cannot be kept away from polling places by, by anything, okay? Um, so there's 70 million of us. That's the population of France. Uh, there's 10,000 more every day. That's more people than are born every day in this country. Um, and since we all vote, our impact is greatly, greatly magnified. It's larger than that 70 million in political terms. And in financial terms, it's way magnified because fair or not, we ended up with all the money. 70% of the country's financial assets belong to the baby boomers or the silent generation above them compared with about 5% for millennials. So if you want a banker to be slightly worried about you, it helps to have a hairline like mine. They know whose money's in their vaults, okay? That's why it's been fun to start trying to organize older people. The theory, the conventional wisdom is that people become more conservative as they age. And there is no denying that there's truth to that. All you have to do is go look at who voted for Donald Trump the last couple of times around. But we can't let it happen at least to the extent that we can prevent it, because the numbers demand this. And I don't think we need to, because I think that there is real and fascinating, what would you call it, generational DNA at play here that can really help people re-examine who they are and what they want. People of this age, in their first act, were around for remarkable political, social, cultural transformation. They were around for the moment when we began to take women seriously as parts of our society. They were around for the moment when people started saying, maybe having fighting wars is not such a great idea. They were around for the apex of the civil rights movement and the idea that we would let everybody vote. They were around, we were around, for the first Earth Day in 1970. When there were 20 million Americans in the street, one in 10 of the then population, the biggest demonstration in American history, and what do you know, it worked. Within two years, Richard Nixon, who cared not a fig for the environment, uh, passed, signed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And what do you know, passing laws works. The air got cleaner and so did the water. So we were around to participate in or bear witness to really, really remarkable stuff. And then either we decided that we'd solved these problems or we just decided in our second act that maybe consumerism was a little more fun than citizenship, you know? Um, with plenty of exceptions, all of whom I'm sure are represented here, you know? But taken as a whole, perhaps the second act not as good as the first. That water has flown beneath the bridge. Uh, there's no getting it back. But in our third act, you know, we have resources, we have a lifetime worth of skills, we have time, which is tremendous asset, and we've got, uh, we've got the grandkids that the 
raging grannies were singing about to clarify our minds, to remind us that legacy is not some abstract thing. Legacy is the world we leave behind for the people that we theoretically love. And the legacy we're leaving behind is for the first time in history, a world way shabbier than the one we found, which is a terrible legacy to leave behind. So that's why we're doing this. And I will add, it's not just on climate that we're organizing. We're also organizing around democracy and race because those are the places where we've also slid back in profound ways. We took for granted the physical stability of the planet, that was a mistake. The poles have now melted. We took for granted, when I was young, the stability of our democracy. Yes, Watergate was bad, but the system worked. You know, we've investigated the guy and tossed him out on his rear end. It would have been impossible to imagine, I think, when I was young, that we would reach a day when people were invading the United States Capitol and killing police officers in an effort to stop the counting of votes. That's crazy, but it's also reality. So we've got our work cut out for us, and I'm not promising you that we're going to win. I don't know. But I do promise you that we're going to try, and I know that we have the tools necessary. And here's, I will just end, since it's your 30th anniversary, by saying that one of those tools, the most important of them, falls under this large rubric that we call nonviolence. There were, I think, from my money, we will decide that the 20th century saw the invention of two truly great and important technologies. The first was the solar panel, which I think we will come in centuries hence to regard as the key technological invention. But the other technology was nonviolent social movements, a kind of technology to allow the powerless to take on the powerful. And it came this idea from the margins, from the suffragettes, from Gandhi, from Dr. King, and from a million people like them whose names we do not know, who were powerless and had no choice, therefore, but to develop some scheme for standing up to colonial power, entrenched racism and sexism, on and on and on, and they did. Nonviolent movement building takes many forms, most of them mundane and boring, collecting signatures, lobbying politicians, on and on and on, but sometimes takes the form of the kind of peaceful civil disobedience that really marked that, in many cases, that first act of our own lives that I've been describing, and needs to mark it again. I do not mean necessarily that everybody here needs to go to jail, although it's an, an increasing number of people tell me that it's on their bucket list and ask if I might it's like, see Machu Picchu and go to jail. Okay, It's like, okay, uh, the second one I can, I can help you with. But you do need to be outside your comfort zone because the planet is way outside its comfort zone. And I will say that there's something particularly beautiful about watching people of a certain age engage in this kind of work. Uh, I was thinking back to the beginning of this fight over the Keystone Pipeline, which was the summer of 2011. 
And I wrote the letter that asked people to come to Washington and get arrested at the start of that, which is not an easy letter to write. But one of the things I wrote in it was, I did not think that young people should have to be the cannon fodder here. Because though they're providing most of the leadership, if you're 19, it's possible that the best thing for your resume is not an extensive arrest record, okay? Um, um, depends what field you're going into, but in general, okay? Um, whereas, past a certain age, what the hell are they going to do to you? you know? um, um, so it was with... It was with pleasure that we watched lots of people with hairlines like mine descending on Washington. 1,254 people got arrested. The biggest civil disobedience action in a long time about anything in America, and enough to kick off a campaign that became the first big loss that big oils ever suffered when we managed eventually to beat the Keystone Pipeline. More to the point, by demonstrating that people could do it, stand up to big oil, it let people, liberated people, to fight every pipeline and every frack well. And, and you guys have done extraordinary things, like this remarkable victory about uh, setbacks for drilling across California, which was a huge win that you should feel very good about. But those 1,254 people, we did not say, as they were getting arrested, how old are you, because that would have been rude. But we did say, and I think rather cleverly, said, who was president when you were born? And the, the two biggest cohorts came from the FDR and the Truman administrations. On the last day, there was a guy arrested with a sign around his neck that said, World War II vet, handle with care. Okay. He was old enough that he'd been born in the Warren Harding administration, which was long enough ago, frankly, that I'd more or less forgotten there was a Warren Harding administration. Okay. Um, it was really good for the young people who were there to see their elders acting the way that we need elders acting in a working society, being willing to go out on the line for the future. And so we're going to need more of that in all kinds of ways. Again, I don't mean that you all need to end up in handcuffs, but I do mean that we really need people stepping up in all the ways that you all have stepped up, I know the people in this room, that you all have stepped up in the course of your lives, but for better or for worse, and mostly I think for better in a lot of ways, your obligations aren't over yet. One more round of this in the hopes that we can figure out how to keep that temperature down low enough that people have a chance. Or I can, I can repeat questions, too, if people can't hear them. Let's just do a... Okay. I don't mean to keep you all here on a nice afternoon, okay. but let's yeah. just let's do a couple and a, a few, or, or critiques, or comments, or abuse, or whatever you would like is good. <laughs> Thirdact.org. And there are people sort of forming, spontaneously forming chapters all over the place and doing all kinds, but even just on a... And one of the things that's fun about the, this thing is many of the cultural icons of that first act are still around and kicking and eager to help out. Uh, fight me if you will, boys, but our generation did produce the best music of all time. And, and so it is, um, it is, uh, it's really fun to be working with like Carol King and Bette Midler and Neil Young and Patti Smith and all these people. Um, 
So there'll be lots of kind of opportunities. So thirdact.org, good question. Yes, yes. Where, where should one put one's money? And it's a very good thing to start thinking ahead um, on these questions. Um, there are a few banks that are actually okay, uh, that have done the work to completely cut themselves off from the fossil fuel industry. And California is lucky because one of them's here. It's called Beneficial State Bank, and they're terrific. And there's also a bunch of places on the web, uh, Atmos, uh, Aspiration, uh, a couple others, and they'll give you credit cards and they'll store your money for you and pay you interest and whatever. So, but the the key the key part at this point is not to do, it's not to go home today and withdraw your money from Bank of America because. Bank of America is so big that they will not notice that you closed your account, okay? So that's why at Third Act, and you guys are welcome to join in even though you've got a few years to go, we have this pledge that people can sign, that at year's end, we will together cut up our credit cards. And I've got great footage of Jane Fonda cutting up her card and Bette Midler cutting up hers and so on, and we're going to all do, I mean, this, this, this is, you know, um, you have that drawer in the kitchen somewhere with the scissors in it, and that is your secret weapon in this fight, you know. So, so, but don't, don't do it by yourself. In fact, if there was one watchword I had for action, it's that at this point, individual action on climate change is largely I mean, I'm glad I've got solar panels all over my roof, and I'm glad they connect to my EV and, you know, on and on. But I do not try to fool myself that that's how we're going to do this. We are past the point where you make the math work one Tesla at a time. The most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual and join together with others in movements large enough to matter. Okay? Period. End of story. Sure. Good question. When we did 350.org, we organi we've organized demonstrations in every country on Earth except North Korea, about 20,000 demonstrations all over the world. And it's been the best part of this work in lots of ways. And it's always worth remembering, if you're feeling your energy flagging to do good things, that in the climate fight, most of the people engaged in the fight are doing it from places that contributed nothing to the problem. I mean, it is really worth remembering all the time that Africa, which is taking it on the chin like no other part of the world from climate change, read the story in the Times today about Somalia. Africa, the entire continent, has put 2% of the carbon that's in the atmosphere in the atmosphere. The 4% of humanity that lives in America has put 25% of the carbon in the air. So. Um, it's really important what you say to globalize things. I mean, they don't call it global warming for nothing. I mean, that's our only hope. So, yeah, we're working as fast as we can. And the good news for Third Act is it turns out that there are old people everywhere. So there you go. Thank you all very much. You were just listening to Bill McKibben on workable solutions to the climate crisis. He spoke in Fresno, California. Bill McKibben is a leading environmental activist. He's the recipient of the Gandhi Peace Prize and the Right Livelihood Award. He's founder of Third Act, which organizes people over the age of 60 for action on climate justice. 
This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Bill McKibben on Workable Solutions to the Climate Crisis, and for Noam Chomsky's book, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Richard Withers and KFCF. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.